every culture has always tried to give people in their culture an explanation so that when you do face up to terrible suffering, you can get through it. And I think it's fair to say is that Christianity has always been particularly good at helping people understand and respond to suffering with a perspective of real genuine hope. But by contrast, I suggest the culture we're alive in and living in today, modern Western culture, is got to be one of the very worst cultures in history at giving people a way to handle suffering. You see, we live in a culture, don't we, that's pretty obsessed with relieving suffering, which, don't hear me wrong, is no bad thing in and of itself. We kind of applaud that and want to see more of that, but the downside is it leaves us pretty ill-equipped to deal with suffering when it comes. We can kind of feel like it's our right to have a trouble-free life, and so we tend to get thrown or confused sometimes even angry when we experience any kind of pain or loss. And so, what I want to try and do this morning is just dip into these three chapters in the book of Acts and see what help they might be able to give us to understand and respond well to seasons of suffering in our lives today. Now, right at the very outset, I do need to just flag up that this talk is going to be slightly akin to climbing a mountain. Anyone in the room ever climbed a mountain? Or or at least uh, a steep incline? Anyone? uh, Any steep incline climbers? Okay, most of you could probably relate to this. It's hard work, isn't it? It requires a bit of energy, uh, a bit of stamina, a bit of commitment to keep going. But eventually, when you get to the top, unless the cloud is low or it's foggy, which is a bit of a downer, but normally speaking, the view makes it worth the effort to get to the top. And just to manage your expectations, this talk is going to be a bit like that. To start off with, it's going to require a little bit of stamina and commitment on your part to keep with me. But I'm almost willing to guarantee that if you hang on in there, the view from the top will be worth the effort. So uh, are you happy to kind of commit to hang on in there with me? Uh, with the prospect, the promise from, from my perspective that the view will be worth it. Yeah? Uh, are, we, are we up for that? Okay, great. Uh, and uh, I think Stephen Jan at the back there, they're, they're walking group. You, you've equipped the site well for this. Uh, you've got a load of walkers here. You know what I'm talking about. So let's go. Now, by way of background, uh, the point where we're actually going to pick up the story, a guy called Stephen, I heard about him uh, last time round, I think, uh, one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church. He's been arrested. He's been hauled before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is one of the the ruling religious councils. And the accusation leveled against him is this. Chapter 6, verse 13, this man, Stephen, is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. So at the beginning of chapter 7, we then read that the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And then Stephen launches into the longest speech in the whole book of Acts. Now sadly, there's not the time to read all of it today. So what I'm going to 
simply do is try and summarize it for you. So if you were to go back and read the passage later on, you could hopefully follow it and understand what it's all about. And to try and keep it as simple as I can, uh, I want to do this under three main headings, because no sermon would be a real sermon without three main headings. So here we go. First of all, we're going to look at what Stephen said. Secondly, we're going to take a look at what Stephen saw. And then finally, we're going to examine what Stephen actually did. So let's begin by looking at what Stephen said. Throughout this long speech, this long sermon, Stephen is basically answering two of the accusations that have been leveled against him. Namely, are you speaking against the temple and are you speaking against the law? And start off with then, he, he does a kind of potted history of the people of Israel, uh, and he argues that, no, we don't need the temple in order to find God. And he gives them loads of examples from Israel's history. He refers to Abraham, Abraham who met God, and Abraham didn't have the temple. Uh, God, if you remember, was with Joseph in Egypt, and Joseph didn't have the temple either. And God met Moses out in the wilderness at the burning bush, and there wasn't a temple there either. And then, even after the temple was constructed and built, Stephen quotes where Isaiah 66 says, God doesn't dwell in a house made with hands. It's like God can't be confined in a box. He's way, way, way bigger than that. So the first thing Stephen does is say, no, you actually don't need the temple in order to meet with God. You can meet with God anywhere. By the way, that creates a bit of a problem. And it mainly has to do with the law. You see, the religious leaders would have been sitting there thinking, well, how in the world can you possibly meet with God unless you obey the law? And if you don't obey the law of God, then you need to offer sacrifices to atone for your sin. And the place where you need to go to offer sacrifices, well, that's the temple. And so Stephen then turns to the law, and once again, he goes through the whole history of Israel, which is why it was an incredibly long talk. First of all, he says, under Moses, actually, you didn't perfectly obey the law of God. Under Aaron, you didn't obey the law. Amos says, you didn't obey the law. He's going through all of these examples, and he's repeatedly saying to them, look, the law of God is good. I wholeheartedly believe in the law. The law of God is important. You can't just put it to one side. You, you can't ignore it or disregard it. But the problem is you've never fully obeyed it. And you never will obey it completely. And so if at the end of the day you are saved simply by obeying the law of God, then you've got a pretty substantial problem on your hands. And so in summary he says, look, no, you don't need the temple in order to meet with God. And yes, you do need to obey the law in order to meet God, but you can't do it. You're still with me? Still? Hang on in there. Great. Let's keep going then. Thirdly, he brings up something else that he sees in the history of Israel. He wasn't asked about, but in many ways is the key to everything else he says in his talk. And this is where he kind of goes for the jugular of the accusers. He says, look, I've noticed this pattern in the history of our people. It's like... Every time God sends someone to deliver us, every time he sends a saviour, someone to rescue us, that deliverer tends to be rejected and persecuted by the very people he was sent to save. Look at Joseph, for example. Joseph was appointed by God to save his family, and yet he ended up being sold into slavery into Egypt by that very family. 
Similarly, Moses, he, he was appointed to deliver his people and bring them out of Egypt. But when he first kind of introduced himself, his people rejected him. He had to flee to the wilderness to save his own life. Later on, there was David. David was appointed to be the true king of Israel, to lead the people. And yet, for big parts of his life, he's in the wilderness. He's a fugitive. He's fleeing for his own life. Stephen's saying, don't you see, every single time God sends a prophet or a deliverer or a saviour, the person tends to be either rejected or persecuted. And then, I mean, talked about the temple, about the problem of the law, and about the pattern of how God always delivers, but the deliverer tends to be rejected. Stephen pulls it all together, and he brings it home in verses 51, 52, and 53. Verses 51 and 53 present us with the nub of the problem, and verse 52, well, we finally see the solution to it all. Verse 51, Stephen says, you stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Before adding in verse 53, you deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. In other words, none of you have kept the law, and your hearts are corrupt to the very core. Ultimately, what you need is a brand new heart. It's almost as though you need to be born again. At the end of the day, you need something that you do not have and cannot have in and of yourself. That's the problem. What's the solution? Well, it's right here in verse 52. It's actually the summary of everything Stephen's been saying. He says, name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. Here's what Stephen's saying. He's saying, I'm all for the law of God. We do need to obey and fulfill God's law. We cannot be saved without our fulfilling the law. And yet the problem is we can't fulfilled the law. So what's the answer? The answer is the righteous one. In other words, the answer is Jesus, the Messiah. Now, of all the things that Stephen could have called Jesus, why call him the righteous one? What does it mean to be righteous? To be righteous means you have fulfilled the law. You were right in regard to the law. But how do you fulfill the law? How do you fulfill any law? Well, you either obey it or you pay the penalty for it or for not obeying it. For example, uh, just down the road, uh, around the corner, there's a set of traffic lights. And as you know, there is a law against going through a red light. Now, as far as I'm aware, there are only two ways to satisfy the law of the red light. One is, you can stop, which, in case you're wondering, is the way I would thoroughly recommend. Don't try the second route, but the first way is you stop at the red light. The other way is you drive on through it. Invariably, you'll get fined, and then you have to pay the penalty. But if you pay the fine, if you pay the penalty, or if you obey the law, the law has no more claim on you. Now, what Jesus does is, first of all, he lives a perfect life. 
He never once disobeyed the law of God. He was righteous in that sense. He lived a perfect life. He loved God with his heart, his soul, his mind, his strength, loved his neighbor as himself. No other human being has ever lived a perfect life like that, but he did. So he's righteous in that sense. He he earned the blessing of eternal life through perfect obedience to the law. But then he went to the cross. He was rejected, he was betrayed, he was denied, he suffered and he died. And when he did that, he took the penalty. If you like, he paid the fine that we deserve for our disobedience. So that when we believe in him, he becomes our righteous one. More than that, he becomes our righteousness. Which means the moment you believe in Jesus, all of the penalty for your disobedience to the law of God is given to him. And in exchange... All of the blessings that he earned with his perfect righteousness is freely given to you. And Stephen is making the profound point here that every other saviour, whether it's Joseph or Moses or David, they all delivered their people in spite of rejection and suffering, but Jesus delivered his people through the suffering and rejection and ultimately even through death. Why? Because through the suffering and rejection, through his deaths, he was fully fulfilling the law. He fulfilled it, first of all, by perfectly obeying the law, ticking that box. And for the sake of completeness, he fulfilled it by paying the penalty, paying the fine for all those who wouldn't fulfill the law. So he's the righteous one. He fulfilled the law for you. What's more, he completely fulfills the purpose of the temple because his death was the final sacrifice ever needed. Don't need to kill animals and offer sacrifices anymore. Jesus' death has paid the price. So he's the bridge between God the Father and humanity. He's the final temple. He's the righteous one, the fulfiller of the law. And if you believe in him, he promises to give you this brand new heart that you so desperately need. If you like, he'll cause you to be born again, no longer having to earn your way to him through your good works and obedience to the law, but righteous in him. Now, if you get that, and I know it's been a bit of a climb to get there, but if you get that, and if you live in the good of it, it's got to be the best news in the whole world. I tell you, if you get that, if you believe that, if you live in the good of it, it will completely and utterly transform your life for the better. But tragically, Stephen's hearers didn't quite see it that way. Verse 54, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation and they shook their fists at him in rage. Some versions say they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, 
receive my spirit. He fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. I think in these verses, we finally get to the secret of how Stephen suffered well and how we can deal well with suffering in our lives as well. It wasn't just what he said or what he kind of knew in an intellectual way. A big part of it was what he actually saw. So what did Stephen see? Well, when he looked up to heaven, he effectively saw Jesus stretching out nail-pierced hands to receive him to embrace him, to welcome him. He saw Jesus, the Lord of the universe, who had literally given up his life for Stephen. And seeing Jesus enables Stephen to pray this incredible prayer, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. Does that sound familiar to you? Isn't that pretty much what Jesus prayed for those who crucified him? Father, forgive them. It's like Stephen in that moment is demonstrating, modeling to others what Jesus had modeled to him. You know, just by way of an aside, those who believe the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and behold the gospel, see it really clearly, always over time become more like the gospel. Stephen has believed and now he has beheld the glorious face of Jesus And now he's becoming just like Jesus. What else did he see? Well, he includes this odd little detail. I don't know if you noticed it when I read the passage. He says he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. Now, why is that an odd detail? Well, as far as I'm aware, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but as far as I'm aware, everywhere else in the New Testament that talks about Jesus at the throne of God the Father, every other reference talks about Jesus sitting. But here, I think for the only time, he's standing. I called F.F. Bruce, who wrote this phenomenal commentary on the book of Acts many years ago, he put it like this, while Stephen was confessing Christ before men, he sees Christ confessing Stephen before God. It's the point that John makes in 1 John 2 verse 1 where he says that we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. Or Hebrews 7 25 which describes how Jesus lives forever to intercede with God on our behalf. And so all the time the the religious leaders are accusing Stephen of being this heretic and a fool. Stephen looks up and sees Jesus standing, affirming him interceding for him, saying, he's mine. Earth was condemning him. Heaven was commending him. Earth rejected him. Heaven stood receiving him. Stephen saw this glimpse of the ultimate courtroom in heaven, and there he saw Jesus standing, commending him. And Stephen chose that affirmation over all the affirmation of the people around him. And I suggest that is the reason why he was able to face what he faced. Listen, to the degree 
you don't just know in your head you're loved by God, but you're experiencing his love. You're rejoicing in the depth of his love for you. You're in awe, amazed at how much you are loved by him, how much you're accepted by him, how much you're delighted in by him, how much you're honored by him. To that degree, you'll be able to face up to anything. I believe that's the secret. Now, if you remember, earlier on, I claimed that the culture we live in, our secular culture, just doesn't really give us anything like this to handle suffering well. Every culture says, look, this is what you should live for. This should be your ultimate meaning in life. And generally speaking, the message of our culture is that meaning, the meaning of life is to be able to have the freedom to live as you want to live. Let's think about that for a moment. If you are living basically to be free, to live as you want to live, to craft your own life, to decide what's right or wrong for you. If the the highest thing in your life is your own personal freedom and happiness, then obviously when suffering comes, that's always going to destroy your very meaning in life. It will decimate it. It it will threaten to rob you of your meaning. You'll completely melt down. You, You have no strength. You have no ability to face up to that suffering. All you can do is try and run from it, avoid it, do anything to get away from it. But if your meaning in life ultimately is knowing and enjoying the love of God for you in Christ Jesus and living for Him and His glory then you can face suffering, even death, and as hard as that is, it cannot ultimately get at your main meaning in life. It can't destroy your meaning in life because your meaning in life transcends this life. You see, only if your highest love only if the thing you love most in all of life is something that can never actually be fully taken away from you. Death can't take it away from you. It's not based on your performance, your ups, your downs. It's not dependent on your circumstances, your wealth, your career, your health, your educational achievements, your family, your popularity. Only the thing you love most only if the thing that is your real meaning in life is something that can never ultimately be taken away from you, only then can you possibly face life with true peace and substantial hope. It's like all around us, everyone else is setting their hearts on other things and suffering ultimately will destroy those things. The secret is to set your heart on the one thing, the only thing that suffering cannot destroy. And then, and only then, will you be able to handle the suffering well. So seeing what Stephen said and what he saw, let's finish thirdly by looking at what Stephen did. I don't know what you think, reading that passage, seems to me like Stephen did everything right. An incredible example but he still ended up dead. I mean, what's that all about? What happened? I mean, why didn't God protect him and increase his ministry and bless him and prolong his days? Well, in all honesty, I haven't a clue. 
I really don't know. I, I wish I could present a nice pat answer to you, but I don't know. But I do know that Stephen's death accomplished a great deal more than his life. And although it perhaps looked to everyone like Stephen's life was being snuffed out by the enemy, all the time Stephen was actually in the hands of a sovereign God. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father, still in charge of it all. Jesus hadn't forgotten him in the midst of his suffering. He certainly wasn't punishing Stephen for anything he'd done wrong. Jesus was still very much in control. And as we're going to see what the enemy intended for evil, God, through it all, was working for good. Because if you remember, Jesus, hadn't he, told the disciples over and over again that the gospel, that the good news about him, it wasn't just for Jerusalem. It's not just for the Jews, it's for all people. But up until this point, they hadn't left Jerusalem. Jesus had said, I want you to go to Samaria. I want you to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. I, I want you to take the gospel to different cultures and different places. But they hadn't gone. And they had one in four of the city, part of the church, but that wasn't the end goal. And so God uses the death of Stephen and the persecution that comes right on the back of it to push the church out a bit. Beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, we read that a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. It's like Stephen's death leads to a whole new explosion of the gospel out from Jerusalem. That's also how it says in verse 58 of chapter 7, that the people who were stoning Stephen, they took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now Saul, of course, would later encounter Jesus for himself, change his name to Paul, and become arguably the greatest evangelist in all of church history. And here Saul is watching as every stone smashed into Stephen's face. Saul heard Stephen's pleas with God to forgive his persecutors. Saul saw saw the glory of God reflected on Stephen's face. Listen, Stephen's blood soaking into the ground, I believe, was the seed of the Apostle Paul's face. Stephen's most effective contribution to the mission of God quite probably came through his martyrdom. Paul wasn't converted by seeing Stephen delivered, by seeing Jesus stepping down from heaven and rescuing Stephen in that moment. I suggest that Saul's later conversion was at least in part down to seeing Stephen full of the Holy Spirit testify to Jesus' glory even in the midst of pain. Do you understand that the message that you preach through pain, through difficult circumstances, through suffering, is often way louder than the ones you could ever preach simply through times of blessing. And I don't say that as some kind of sick masochist who wants you all to suffer and be in pain and endure persecution. I don't want that for me, and I certainly don't want that for any of you. But I'm telling you, your suffering will lead to glory if you know how to do what Stephen did. If you know in the midst of it all how to look up to heaven 
and look and see afresh what Jesus has done. And if the things you know about the gospel get real to you at a heart level, if you know, like Stephen, that your life isn't ultimately all about you, it's not about you living and prospering. It's not about getting the respect that you deserve. One other thing else is about knowing and enjoying relationship with Jesus and pointing more and more and more people to him. And from start to finish, that's pretty much what Stephen's life did. And I reckon the sobering lesson from his life is that there is an amplification that God can give to your testimony in the midst of pain, that you sometimes can't have simply in the midst of blessing. So here's the question. What's it all about for you? Ultimately, what, what's it all about for you? Be honest. You find yourself easily offended by others. Standing up for my rights justifying myself do you find yourself at times getting angry with God for not giving you what you feel you deserve the life that you feel you warrant at the end of the day is it more about you than God is it more about you getting what you want than others getting to know Jesus through you look you're never gonna be able to embrace suffering and sacrifice. You're never going to be radically generous. You're never going to be willing to risk your reputation to tell other people about Jesus if it's only ever all about you. And so, more than anything else, my, my prayer today is that somehow, in some way, you'd be able to believe the gospel with fresh faith that somehow in some way you would see, you would behold the glory of Jesus with fresh clarity and that somehow in some way you would give your life to becoming more like him. And for those in the room, and I know there are people in the room who are suffering, of those who maybe you find yourself in a place right now where it's a struggle to obey Jesus, I'm telling you, you need to see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father for you. Right now, he's before the Father, affirming your salvation and cheering you on. And you need to see that he, through everything you're going through, is still Lord of all. He is still in control. And just as he's able to use Stephen's martyrdom to provoke the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth, he is more than capable of using your suffering and your pain for good. So this morning, won't you look and see Jesus standing in love and victory at the right hand of God the Father for you? Because the degree to which you understand and know Jesus' love and victory is the degree to which you'll be able to endure suffering well. And through your suffering well, God can save the world. If you're able to, can I invite you to stand? In a moment, I want us to pray. I also want to give you 
right where you're at, an opportunity to respond to this. You know, many of you, I believe you've been called by God right now to glorify Him, even through trials. For some of you, it's very rare, it's a physical affliction, maybe emotional affliction. Perhaps you need to pray, Jesus, help me, please. Help me to see you standing for me. In the midst of it all, help me to trust you. Help me in some way to give glory to you, whatever happens. Some of you, I reckon you've probably been put in situations where it's pretty costly to obey Jesus, to stand up for him. Maybe it's a push by the people around you to compromise your standards. Maybe you're you're suffering potentially the loss of reputation that comes from standing on what God says to be right, trying to live with integrity. Maybe people are, are throwing verbal stones at you and it hurts, it really hurts. You've got to come to a place where you can say in faith, Jesus is still worth it. Jesus is still worth it. Because at the end of the day, it's only confidence in the risen Jesus that will give you the ability to suffer and suffer well. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, Christ's love controls us. Another version puts it, Christ's love compels us. I want us to know and experience the love of Christ afresh today. To move in a few moments into worship, my prayer is that we would know the love of Jesus for us in a new way. Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Are you willing to pray along those lines right now? You had to pray, Lord, it's not about me. I believe that Christ died for all so that those of us who receive his new life will no longer live just for themselves. You're willing to pray that today. It's a radical prayer. It changes everything. God wins the world through people who can say it's not about me and Jesus is worth it.